0: This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church. Transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today. We're looking at some some sayings of Jesus that are difficult and yet very good for us and freeing for our hearts. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 43. And this is about what Jesus says to do when you're surrounded by Uh, Enemies and people who curse you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the unrighteous, or on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, As we've been going through this series on the good and beautiful uh, life, um, or learning to live, we've had this picture that's before us of Jesus sitting uh, surrounded by folks, and he's telling them about the kingdom of God. You know, and, and the opening lines to his to his sermon, at least to what Matthew tells us. Jesus goes down through all of these uh, blessed things. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who weep. Jesus is opening up to people who, who thought that they were cut off from God. He's opening up and saying, no, you're not cut off from God. In fact, God loves you. God cares for you. God opens wide the kingdom gates, if you will. And he says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here for everyone and especially if you've thought of yourself as somebody who who can't access it Jesus says the kingdom is here for you and it's coming in your midst and so this this picture which is out in the foyer out in the in in the welcoming center and then is up here and on on the front of the bulletin cover it's been there and it's it's there to sort of embrace us and for us to find a place of being in that spot of listening to Jesus, in fact, of hearing Jesus speak to us as we are there, as and hearing him speak kind of freshly to us, not like something that you just read out of a out of a book or out of a pages, but that his voice would sort of leap off the page and connect with us, where we would say, "Man, he's he's speaking to me." The picture is rather serene, and yet, as you continue to sit there and listen to Jesus, Jesus's words don't always hit us in a serene sort of way like this surrounding is speaks of serenity and then Jesus starts talking about things like anger and he starts talking about things like lust and he starts talking about lying and and uh, today he's talking about loving your enemies and just as Jesus continues to talk i don't know about you but you ever get uncomfortable with what Jesus says because the things that Jesus is saying to us Kind of go against our nativeness. They go against what is sort of in us. When Jesus gets to the part about um, loving your enemies and praying for those and blessing those who curse you, at least audibly in me, when I'm listening to it, kind of like with a real deep freshness, I just want to go, "What up? Who can do that? You know? Are you kidding? Seriously? You want you want us to to bless those who?" Who curse us and pray for those who, who abuse us? What are you? Are you drinking something weird? Are you smoking something weird? What do we? We just don't do that. You know that's not normal. Um, it's not normal for us. It's really not normal for the people who are gathered around Jesus at this moment. I mean, they live in a world that um, has known lots of violence, and. Over the course of time, over the course of God's working with people, they've tried to sort of limit how they respond and how they um, express themselves. If you go all the way back in the book of Genesis, Will, I'm going to totally mess you up right now, but can you go there to the, the biblical, how things go in, through the biblical narrative about how people do this? When you look at the, the flow of Scripture as a whole, God, um, God sees that there's this sense... Or, or, this capacity in the world to really uh mete out violence, like when when we encounter people who don't um, treat us well, when we encounter people who curse us, across the biblical narrative, um, God has been working with people to sort of ratchet our response down because our native response is is to re- kind of respond like Toby Keith's the Angry American Song uh, soon after nine eleven you know, Toby Keith is just mad, it's kind of the whole country's mad. We're gonna we're gonna do something about that. And so Toby Keith comes out with a song and he says, you know, you've you've hit us, you know, like a sucker punch. He has this interesting language, like a sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back, but he says, we're gonna light up your world like the Fourth of July. Light it up. And Toby Keith really expresses sort of the first response to a vengeance to a a reply to evil that that we face in the world that's expressed within the pages of Scripture. In the book of Genesis, um, Cain and then Cain's sons have conversations with God where they say, if anyone were to do anything to us, Cain said, I'll hit him back seven times harder than they ever hit me. And Cain's son said, seven times, Daddy, that's not enough. I'm going to hit him 70 times if somebody is nasty to me. He said, I'll just be that bad. There is this sense of of unfiltered revenge that, that is on display if if you face an enemy in, in the narrative of Scripture. And it's not just in the narrative of Scripture, but it's also within sort of our native responses. Um, God looks at the world and says, you know, the world cannot live, the world cannot exist if that's the way people live and treat one another. Because if somebody does something that isn't, is nice, is unkind to you, and you just blow up their world, there's not going to be any world left. And so to Moses, God brought up this law, the lex, the, uh, what is it, the lex t- telionis? I keep saying to people, if you don't know the wor- if you don't know a word that's in, just say it uh, hard and fast and long, you know, and then people will say, think you're an expert. So whenever you're reading scripture, you know, and you get to a word, you don't know how to pronounce it, just say it with gusto, and it Everybody will think you know it. You're the expert. Um, so, so God brings along Lex, uh, the Lex Talion, and He says, you know, instead of having unlimited revenge, limit your revenge, and that's where we get the whole idea of an eye for an eye. So, you know, if if somebody like um, if somebody were to you're walking along and somebody has a branch out and they poke an eye out, uh, you don't get to turn around and you know cut their hand off or or cut their life off. You just, you know, get to gouge an eye out. That's what Moses, that's what God says to Moses. Let's limit the revenge that's taking place in our world An eye for an eye. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, that's, that's better than what we had before. But if you run with the eye for an eye thing, before long, everybody's walking around maimed in some way. You know, like everybody's missing an eye or they're missing an arm, they're missing something. So is there something beyond the lex talion? law, the eye for an eye. So yes, there was, in fact, something that came along in, a, in the intertestamental time between the Old Testament and New Testament. There was this idea of the silver law that we could move, in fact, as, as a human family, we could move beyond an eye for an eye. We could move to the point where we would not do to others what we wouldn't want them to do to us. So it's really kind of a law from the point of negation. We're going to withhold ourselves. We're not going to express ourselves, and we're going to think that if something wrong happens to us, what would we not want done to us if we were the wrongdoer? And so we might restrain ourselves from an eye for an eye. And then Jesus, a little bit later on, will give us the golden rule, which says do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. That's in in Matthew 7, where we say, you know what, we really ought to, the golden rule says we ought to think about positive action in our world. What could we do positively? But before Jesus gets to that point of giving the golden rule, he really tells us, and he lays out not just the golden rule, but he gives us this picture of what God the Father is doing and what the Father is like when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who curse you. Because over the the life of Jesus, Jesus isn't just going to talk about this in a sermon, but he's going to live it out. Because Jesus is going to have... He's going to face a lot of people who don't like what he does. He's going to encounter a lot of people who don't like what he says. And yet Jesus is going to continue to live a life of blessing and care, a life that's uh, interested in what's happening in the world. And when Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus goes to the cross not with curses, but on the cross he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Jesus goes to the cross with blessing. He lives out this idea that the Father loves with an unending love, with a boundless love, even to those who curse. And as people sit on the hillside, He invites us into that kind of life. Now, how do you do it? What does it look like? How do you, how do you flesh that out? Well, one of the things that Jesus um, gives us James Bryan Smith says, one of, the, one of the kind of undercurrents that Jesus gives to us is this idea that the kingdom of God is never in trouble. The kingdom of God comes into this world, intersects with this world, and Jesus is never really overly concerned with all of, all of our fears. I mean, he's concerned about our fears, but he doesn't let fear grip his life and control his life. He doesn't let anxiety take control of his heart. He doesn't let what others are saying determine how he responds. He doesn't let what others do shape his, uh, his initial response or the fullness of his response. Jesus is living, James Ryan Smith says, with a face, and actually Luke says, with a face that's turned toward the Father. And when he sees the Father, Jesus sees more than trouble, anxiety. Jesus sees more than than the stuff that we see. Jesus sees that the Father is up to something good for this world, for himself. And Jesus is able to trust himself into the care of the Father. So that when the disciples who are traveling with Jesus are with him in the Last Supper and they know what kind of trouble Jerusalem holds, Jesus doesn't see the trouble. Jesus sees the resurrection. And Jesus sees that the Father is always about good stuff for Him. So James Bryan Smith, through the book The Good and Beautiful Life, is always coming back to this idea that the kingdom is not in trouble. Um, Yesterday, I had a a marvelous day. Uh, I found out that Michigan State Spartans won uh, their football game. I found that out about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that was about the only thing I knew that happened in the world yet. I didn't know that uh, that the Missouri Tigers won, and I'm like, wow. Uh, somebody else, re- well, never mind. Um, but I, I knew those two things, and then I, but most of my day yesterday was spent outside doing things away from things that were happening in the world. Um, I got into uh, into church here earlier this morning, and and. Pastor Jim wanted to talk about the cardinals. He said, you know, it's the first thing we have to do. We have to talk about cardinals before we get to start on anything else. And I looked at him. I said, did they win yesterday? And he looked at me like, "Like you have committed a great sin. So he knelt down, and he said, before you can preach, we have to pray for absolution. So he got down, and he prayed. And I guess I'm forgiven. I said, no. And even after he prayed, I still said, you didn't tell me. Did they win? It's like, Of course. I, I was thinking about that this morning, like, you know, I don't even know, is the government still shut down? <laughs> like, I guess it is. But when you think about all of the news, all the stuff that takes place in the world, all the, the things that come at you, that drive at you, there's tons of anxiety that is filtered across all of our media. There's tons of messages that we receive that say, you ought to, you ought to think you're in trouble. You ought to be fearful about something. You ought to, you you know, put all of the security around you. And when people do something that isn't nice, that isn't beneficial, you just ought to know that you're in trouble in that moment. And Jesus says, you're not. In the kingdom of heaven, we are not in trouble because the Father cares for us. The sun comes up in the morning and the sun blesses the people who are righteous and the people that don't give a hoot about it. God sends rain on people who pray for rain and people who detest it because they think it's ruining their day. Because that's who God is. He's never untroubled. He's never, um, he's never moved with anxiety. And so when people curse God, God is able to bless them. When people think that God doesn't care about them, God's able to express his care. And Jesus invites us into that. And one of the things that can help us get to that place of walking with Jesus, James Bryant Smith talks about uh, soul training events. Um, One of the things that can get us to that place is praying for other people. In fact, that's what Jesus invites us to do. You know, when you face somebody in your world, in your life, that isn't kind to you, that's not nice to you, that um, that may, in fact, reflect the idea. You may think that, anyways, that they, that they may, may even hate you. What can you do when you're in that moment? Well, Jesus says, well, you can pray for them. You can bless them. Praying for people when they don't... Uh, And they hate you is a very difficult thing. Yet Jesus invites us to do that. Now you may say to yourself, there's no one in my world right now that I think hates me. There's no one in my world right now that um, is like an enemy unto me. Uh, James Bryan Smith ponders the question, is there a competitor? Is there somebody that you compete with on a daily basis or on a weekly basis? Is there somebody that you think, you know, if... If they do really well, I'm not going to do so well. And my world's going to be crimped in some way. He suggests that we pray for them. Pray every day for them. Pray for their well-being. Pray that they would walk in the ways of God. Pray that they would walk in the light of God. Pray that God would just pour out His blessing upon their life. And he, He suggests to us that when we do that, God starts to do something not just for them, but He starts to do something in us. He starts to work on our hearts. He starts to think about, He starts to help us think about um, what's deep down inside? What is rooted deep within? Um, one of the things that this, this series on learning to live has brought up is that uh, walking in the ways of Jesus is a very difficult thing. And there are practices that we can put into our life and that we can do that help put us on the road, right? It puts us on the road of repentance. It puts us on the road to where Jesus can do something. But every now and again, you come up short. You come up short in yourself. You come up short in your own capacity. In fact, we're made that way. We are not made fully sufficient beings. We are not made with all of the capacity to do everything that we ought to be able to do. We come up short. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I am going to guess that everybody in here has had at, po- at some point in your life, you've faced some kind of enemy an enemy primarily in a person. And when that name gets mentioned, and it may not even be, you know, maybe a name from your way distant past, but when that name, just even the name gets mentioned, there are things that happen in your physical body. You know, your gut kind of knots up just a little bit or the hairs stand up on the back of your head. I think everybody's got somebody like that. If you don't, you may need to listen to Pastor Bob's sermon from last week about lying. But what do you do when you struggle with that moment? with that? Because you can enter into a season of prayer and yet you still come to that place and it's like, I'm not enough. Jesus, I'm not enough. How, how can I get past this? How can, I, how can I love like you love? How can I really pray for an enemy? I don't even know if I can pray for this person. We were talking about these kinds of things that Jesus addresses in one of the G12 groups I'm a part of and one of the persons there said uh, you know I she said I really drew some strength on one of Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church at the end of Thessalonians the first Thessalonians 5 Paul has a benediction and when he comes to this benediction uh, Paul says you know God calls us into holiness God calls us to be like him God calls us to do the things that he does. And then she said, there is this line that Paul puts in there that is, that is a great deal of help for me. Paul says, He who is faithful, he who has called you to this, he will do it. He will do it. God can make this happen. One of my uh, favorite writers in all of the world is C.S. Lewis. Um, and he's got a whole bunch of philosophical, theological stuff that is really great. But the the apex, the peak of his theology is reflected, and the peak of really good theology is reflected in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, if you ever want to get your head around good theology, just pick up the Chronicles of Narnia. Read the books, skip the films. Okay, read the books, skip the films. The good stuff is in the books. And in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there is this... Young boy by the name of Eustace, who is as Lewis calls him, um, well, he's he's not a nice boy. He's a crass boy. He's a boy who has no love for his cousins. He has no love for the world. He's the center of his universe, and he thinks everything ought to be centered around him. <clears throat> In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace goes through this sense of discovery, and he discovers that his. Putting himself at the center creates this this dragon sort of attitude that infects everything else. And so, Lewis has Eustace turn from a boy into a dragon when he goes into this this dragon's lair. And Eustace discovers, he looks at himself in a mirror and he really sees himself for who he is. He's He's a dragon. He's a beast. And he has this moment of repentance. He has this moment where he's like man, I really would like to turn into a boy again. How do I get back into a boy? And he he can't figure it out. And his cousins and everybody on the Dawn tread, they're trying to figure out, how do we get Eustace, who we now know is the dragon, how do we get him to go with us? And everybody's kind of lost. They don't know what to do. And there's this moment when Eustace, who has what the gospel writers call is the spirit of repentance. He has the spirit of sorrow. He has the spirit of... I wish I wasn't what I am, but I don't know how to become what, what I ought to be, which is a boy. How does that happen? Eustace has this, this moment when he, he sees Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, the, the person of Jesus in Lewis's books. And, and Aslan tells him he needs to undress. And Eustace thinks to himself, how would a dragon undress? How would an, a reptile undress? And he says, well, reptiles can shed their skins, right? And so he starts to shed his skin. He starts to take his arms, and he claws, and he claws off the outer skin. And then he says, oh, I've got another skin. So he claws again, and he keeps clawing. He keeps clawing the skins off and off, and they lay there, skin after skin after skin. But he looks down, and he's still a dragon. He's like, what do I do when I'm at this point? And Aslan speaks to him. Aslan speaks, and he says, you have to let me undress you. You have to let me undress you. There is a point. There is a point. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we ourselves are not enough. But we were never made to be enough. We were never created for the full capacity to let it reside in here. Because we were all made to be in relationship. We were all made to be in communion with God. And in that moment when Eustace says, I can't undress. And Aslan says, you have to let me undress you. Aslan reaches out his hands and he cuts Eustace to, the, to his heart. And he pulls the dragon skin, all of the fatty layers of dragon skin away. And he pulls it aside and throws it down. And, you, and Aslan with velvety paws lifts him up. And he says his velvet paws hurt because my skin was so tight and so raw and he threw me into this bath of water, a healing bath, a cleansing bath and then he lifted me out and he dressed me with clothes that fit me. I was a boy again. Jesus, when we walk in the way of repentance, when we walk in the way of of prayer, when we seek to love those who don't love us Jesus finds a way to come alongside of us and walk with us and do something in us that we can't do for ourselves this past summer um, I want one one more picture Um, the picture of the church surrounded if you've been listening to the news you know that Egypt went through a great deal of turmoil this summer and uh, the, the chief bishop of the Coptic church, Bishop Thomas, in the middle of September went to a Scandinavian country and he gave an interview about what a number of Christians went through over the summer. And there are about, 10, th- or there are about 10% of Egypt is Christians. And so when all of that turmoil was taking place, questions about whether it was President Morrissey was going to stay in power, or whether the army was going to take him out, when all of that turmoil took place, all of that anger, there was tons of anger that was expressed. And when, when you're a certain population in the midst of a country, um, you, can, you can be given by the, everyone else around you kind of the scapegoat. You can become the scapegoat. And Christians in Egypt were made the scapegoats for all of the trouble that was kind of afflicting Egypt. And so after President Morsi was taken out, one of the targets, one one thing that was targeted were Christian churches, and by mid-September, about fifty-three of them had been burned and destroyed. There were lots of stories of, of chaos, of uh, neighbors, in fact, uh, coming out into the streets and saying, "This shop over here is owned by Christians." People have been neighbors for twenty years, and yet they were they were outed as Christians, outed to take on some of some of the angst and the the despair of a people. And so how do the Christians in Egypt respond? Now, Bishop Thomas tells this great story of saying, you know, we have heard the story of Jesus calling us to love our enemies. We don't always do that to the best of our ability. And we don't always do that The way we should. But we take his call to love our enemies seriously. And we're trying to walk in that way. We're trying to reach out and build bridges with people who may not call Jesus Lord, but they have some regard for him. So this is a picture. It's after the turmoil gets started, it's after churches are burned. This is a picture of Muslims and Christians standing around a church building. They're standing together. They're praying together. They're seeking peace. They're seeking the way of Jesus. To love their enemies. To pray for those who don't understand us. They don't think it's easy. They have. They don't have any blinders on their eyes because it's not. But here's the deal. When you pray. When you walk in the way of Jesus. Jesus will meet you. And he will do things. That are beyond your own capacity. And he will help us rise and fly on eagles' wings. Amen.